The kingdom of God is not going to hide. It's like a lamp brought into a dark room and set on a stand to give light to all. That's how God's kingdom works. It's not going to hide. The kingdom of God is not going to stop. It's like a seed planted in the ground, given sunlight and water. You can't make it grow. You can't stop it from growing. It's going to grow. The kingdom of God is not going to stop. And the kingdom of God is going to surprise you, amaze you, cause you to marvel, astound you. None of our English words really get it. Blow you away. Like if you were to ponder a seed as if you'd never seen one before and thought, what will this be when it grows up? And you were able to imagine a flower. No, you wouldn't. It blows you away. It's God's creativity beyond anyone's imagination, beyond what we could conceive or foresee. The kingdom of God is going to astound you. Three stories Jesus told us last week before moving on to uh, calm a storm upon the sea, silence the abyss, the abode of darkness, the deep, wherein the dead and the demons haunt, where Leviathan plays. Jesus silences it with a word and then proceeds to do what he's been doing from the start when he burst onto the scene proclaiming this kingdom of God and casting out demons, unclean spirits. More than any other gospel, Mark is focused on Jesus' assault against the hordes of wicked fallen angels, most especially, of course, and you know, that strong man, the devil, who Christ has already said he is here to bind so that he might plunder his house, his house being this world and the treasure in the field, of course, being you, who Jesus is after, Following that, what's happened in our story before we get to where we are today? In our midweek Wednesday service, we heard about a few more things that Jesus does. He leaves Legion, and the region where Legion is, that man who's been healed, wanting to come with him, Jesus saying, no, stay here and go and tell everybody what God has done for you, which should strike you as weird, because up to this point in Mark, Jesus has said to everybody he's healed, don't tell a soul. But he says to this guy, no, you can't come with me. Go tell everyone you know. He gets on the boat. He goes back across the sea, and he runs into two sets of stories, two people, both with the number 12 connected. There is a woman who has been suffering a blood hemorrhage from, for 12 years. And then there's a little girl who was born the year this woman's illness began, who's now 12 years old, and she has just died. And Jesus not only raises the dead girl to life, that should blow everyone away. This is better than healing a withered hand on a Sabbath day. Who could do this but Elijah or Moses? And even they rarely. But I think it's even more stunning that this healing of the 12-year blood hemorrhage, Jesus heals her on accident. He doesn't plan it. She doesn't ask him. He's just walking by. She touches his coat, and he's healed. Of course, he knows this, but we're going to see again in the next week how Jesus' clothes, you know, they get close to him, and they begin to do what he does. Anybody who gets close to Jesus finds out he's so clean 
that the unclean can't stick around in his presence, not because he just sends you away. That's what he does to the demons. He actually cleans you. He's so clean, the clean rubs off on the dirty. Yes? This is what atonement is ultimately about. After these two miraculous events, we also heard on Wednesday how he spent a little bit of time at home. He went back to Nazareth, and what he got was a, uh, an earful of go away and who the heck are you? Even his brothers, James and Joseph and Judas and his sisters, they're mentioned. And no one sticks up for him. No one wants to hear what he has to say. Uh, he can even not do quite as many miracles there because he's not going to feed their unbelief, basically. So that's where we are up to where we're going to pick up today on page 841 of your Pew Bible. Or if you would like your own Bible, that's always a wonderful thing to have with you. We're looking at chapter 6, verse 7. And we heard read the story about Herod. But before that, right on the heels of the people who ought to be on Jesus' side... Not being on Jesus' side, you see Jesus doing what Jesus is good at. He's not bothered by it. He turns around, takes his 12 apostles, and doesn't just send them out. He's already done that. He gives them a particular charge. Remember, the 12 have already been named. They've already been told to go preach the kingdom. They've been told to heal diseases. And they've been told to cast out demons. Now here, he turns around and does it again. Verse 7, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Remember again, Mark likes this phrase, unclean, for describing the demons uh, because I think he ties it to the uncleanness of our sin and that Jesus is here to be the purification of all of these things and part of that is by purging, cleansing the world of these fallen angels. As he sends his disciples out with this tremendous power again, like these demons can't stand against you, you got nothing to fear, he charged them also, it says in verse 8, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on the two tunics and the belt and the staff, but let it suffice. He sends them out to be like prophets. The prophets did not have nice homes and big money belts. What they had was whatever they received as they traveled around ancient Israel teaching the word of God where the priests failed to do so because it really was the priests and Levites who were supposed to be doing that. But the prophets stood out. They looked funky. They were from the outside. And that's indeed what he says here. And similarly, when a prophet comes to you and he says, repent, and, and you don't repent, that prophet never says, maybe I could have said it in a nicer way. Oh, I'm not so sure that was really the word of God. Oh, I, I, I hope that they'll eventually like me. 
No, no, when a prophet is sent by God to say repent, and you say, I'm not going to listen to you, prophet, that prophet just says, oh, you're going to get what you're going to get, and he leaves. So again, wiping the dust off the feet is Jesus saying to any Jewish people living at that time who are hearing that the kingdom of God has come and seeing the signs but won't believe it's actually the kingdom of God, oh, that they are therefore rejecting the covenant which they've spent so long trying to keep. And that they should expect nothing more than what Sodom and Gomorrah has headed, had headed their way many years before. And as I hope you know by now, after Jesus is crucified for our sins as God's plan for the salvation of the world, the rejection of him and the end of the old covenant does happen, as he prophesied. And that temple in Jerusalem eventually is destroyed in 70 AD as a complete rejection of the old and an ushering in of the new. Uh, don't respond this time, but he is risen, right? It's, it's new now. All right, so they're doing the power thing. The family doesn't care about Jesus, but that ain't stopping the kingdom. Not going to hide, not going to stop, going to astound you. Here they are, two by two, casting out demons. And you better believe if there were demons in your town and these guys walk in, you're going to maybe start listening <laughs> to what they have to say. But then that's where this story about John the Baptist's death should kind of hit you. Like if you're reading the book of Mark as a story, it's going to be like a wall coming out of left field into your face. Like, he doesn't even tell you that John the Baptist gets killed before he just says, oh, by the way, he was dead. I mean, look at how it starts. Uh, verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Wait, that, last you saw him, he was preaching. What happened to that guy, right? If you don't know, it's a bit of a shock. And that some people are saying, well, he was a prophet, and oh, look, he's been raised from the dead, and that's why this guy, they call him Jesus, but it's actually John the Baptist, he has these miracle powers now because he was killed and he's risen from the dead. John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Hallelujah. Oh, I said it. <laughs> uh, see how right they are. They're waiting for someone, a prophet of old, to be killed and raised from the dead with power beyond imagine as a result. They're right. They just, they just are wrong. They're, they're, they're missing the point. But Mark wants you to see, I mean, where is Jesus going? He's going to die. That's where he's going. It's, it's not wrong. The story is in the right direction here. They also, though, some of them, they say he is Elijah. Verse 15. And, and this has a lot to do with the intertestamental times. The times between the return from exile to settle the land under Zerubbabel, right, Joshua the priest, uh, and the Maccabees come about and have to defend themselves against the Greeks, and then eventually the Romans take over, start taxing Judea, bring in governors down there, and, and then finally here we are in Jesus' day. That's 500 years without a single prophecy. And the last prophecy was Malachi, my messenger, who says, my messenger will come before me right before the end, and it will be Elijah. Well, that's a bit of a confusing thing to say, when that's the last thing you say after the whole Old Testament. Let me tell you. Well, wait, Elijah? I mean, he's an important prophet, don't get me wrong, but what, reincarnation? That's not really been the plan so far, right? So that debate happens for 500 years. Who's this guy going to be? Is it really going to be Elijah? Will it be someone who's in the spirit of Elijah, right? And then, you know, I hope by now, Jesus is very clear that John the Baptist is Elijah, not reincarnate, but the spirit of Elijah come to precede his own Christ's own coming. 
But that debate then about who is this Elijah, when will he come? Some people are saying, well, this guy, Jesus, I don't think he's the Christ because you have to have Elijah come first. Maybe that's who this is. So they're saying that and others are saying just he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And who are they? They are men carried along by the Spirit of God in the midst of the times so that by basis of the old word they already have, they never go against the word that's already come. But on the basis of the old word that they already have, they speak a new word directly from the Spirit, inspired and without error, to be received by the earth as God's holy word. There's not a lot of these guys. There's not. The spirit of prophecy in the New Testament church isn't quite like this. Right? We don't have books from the prophets in the book of Acts that we now read because that's not what they came for, and that, that gift, it appears to have quieted at the very least. But these old prophets of old, they never backed down from anyone ever. And again, what's Jesus doing? He's never backing down. He's saying, I've got the word. And so some people are saying he's just like one of the prophets. Herod, this guy who's a bit of a puppet king, he's a, uh, not the Herod the Great who did the murdering in the building. Uh, he's a nephew of his. Um, he's a bit of a two-faced, double-sided guy. And he hears of this, Jesus, doing all these things, and he's convinced that the first story is the right one. Right? He says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, for the sake of the journey through Mark, again, see how Mark is setting you up? It's the right story, just the wrong time. But we're on that story eventually. We're going to get there. Uh, he's going to be raised. Yeah. John 2, verse 17, goes into the history. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. There's a lot that could be said there about Herod's personality as the double-minded man who the Bible not only condemns but encourages us to pray that we do not become. The man who hears the word of God and walks away and forgets it, like one who looks in a mirror but doesn't know what he looks like afterwards. If you want more on that, the first service sermon goes into some detail we're going to skip today for the sake of the rest of the story. You can always find that on our website, sp815.org, Herod, the, the two-faced man. But let's just get this bit, though. Here's a guy who basically, you know, was at dinner, Thanksgiving, and his brother's wife's winking at him. And his brother's wife has a, well, his brother has a daughter, too, and she's cute. And he goes ahead and he marries the one, gets her into his house, and then has the other one perform for guests. This is pretty gross. It's pretty gross all the way through it. And John's saying, again, um, that's against the Old Testament law. <laughs> yeah, But Herodias will have none of it. And do you hear, remember, John's in the spirit of Elijah. Do you remember how Elijah had a wicked king who he would talk to sometimes? And the guy would kind of hear him, but kind of not. And then Ahab. But Ahab was married to Elijah's real problem, yeah, Jezebel. See the overlap? Yeah, the spirit of Elijah has come. All right, so, so this happens. He's put in prison for the truth, the truth about marriage, mind you. 
as we live in a day and age where such truths can get you hated, yes, uh, then since he won't do anything about it, won't set him free, verse 21, of course the opportunity comes at his birthday when he gives the party for himself and all those around him and she comes out and dances, I won't read all the way through it again. But then he vows to her, right? He promises in front of everyone, I'll give you anything you want, my niece, my love, uh, anything you want up to half of my kingdom, which is very specific ancient world talk for, if I can afford it, I'm going to do it for you, right? whatever you want. And this girl is either um, so incompetent or such a good child that she goes straight to her mother and asks what she should do. Incompetent, you don't know what you want. Uh, a good child, you realize what you want might be a bad decision. You ask the elder for good advice. You pick which one she is. In either case, she goes to a person who's going to give bad advice. Half the kingdom. I mean, you could have like, like treasuries and lands and titles. And all that. You just want the head of John the Baptist. And the girl hurries in immediately, and she doesn't just say the head of John the Baptist. You see how she's a piece of her mother broken off. She says right away, the head of John the Baptist on a plate. Of course, Herod doesn't want to break his oath, but uh, he, you know, he has this kind of false virtue about him. And so he goes ahead and kills the prophet. And this, again, if you're in Mark's story, Jesus, king of authority, Jesus, nobody stops him, Jesus, respecter of no person, Jesus, the guy who changes everything, and his forerunner just got murdered. It's got to feel like a brick of rocks, a pile of rocks falling on you, because it doesn't make sense. Jesus is supposed to win. John is supposed to get out and be victorious. He did the right thing. Why did he lose? How often is that not your own daily walk in your heart, right? Why did I not succeed? What did I do wrong? How come I can't achieve it? Why did I fail again? And if you don't believe in the God of John the Baptist, then you're going to believe it's because God hates you at some point. But John's here to show us, no, 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 the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and it's not about this one, it's about the one of the world to come. And, you know, if you lose anything in this life, a hundredfold in the one of the world to come, so you head out early, like at age 30, like John, guess what? It's going to be even better for you later. And John knew this, and we know this. And the story is here to teach us that, right? to teach it again, because our flesh hates this. Our sin fights this. And so again, your devotion, your daily walk is always a battle between the spirit who's alive within you, placed there by the Holy God according to his precious word, and that old Adam that clings around you trying to say, no, 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 not you. No, 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 you don't count. No, 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 not you. Now, Jesus says, yes, you. Just, just look, John the Baptist, I let him die. Most righteous of all men. Don't let your circumstances tell you who you are. Let the word of God tell you who you are. Let the washing of regeneration tell you who you are. Let the deposit of the Holy Spirit, according to precious promises, tell you who you are. His head is brought on a platter. Verse 29, let's look at that before we go on, because there again, this is, Mark's good. Mark's good. Huh? Uh, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. If you can't hear the other story in that, let me just say it again. It's, it's almost identical to what it says later in the book. Uh, when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. And the setup's there for Easter. It's right there already. John, uh, John, Mark knows exactly where he's going. He knows where he's taking you. 
the empty tomb. Now, moving on a little bit, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus, right? He sent, remember the sermon sandwich? Meet, uh, sorry, story sandwich? He sends them out. John the Baptist, they return. Mark's doing this all the way through, right? Open a story, middle story, end the story. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Having talked about this this morning, I brought it up every week. Mark wants you to see how human Jesus is, too. Why does Jesus want to go away to a desolate place? He wants some, some quiet. He wants some time to rest because he physically is being, as a man, pushed to the limits. And as God, could he, could he cheat? Could he give himself a little bit of superpower to like get through a hard day? He could, but he didn't. This is his act of obedience. Born under the law. Born to redeem those under the law, right? So he walked the road with the thorns, and he didn't skip the pain. Well, maybe when he saw him. He didn't magically turn the thorns aside and never feel the pain. So he needs some time alone. He brings them away from the crowds. So many are there, they don't even have time to eat. They just got to eat. Now, verse 33, many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's a beautiful moment, right? Again, this, this same guy who, you know, if you're in a storm and he's sleeping in the boat, he doesn't want you to wake him and he'll yell at you if you do. The same guy gets to the place where he wants some quiet time. He needs to just take a nap. And there's thousands of people. What does he do? Does he, does he see them and go, those people? No, it's, it says he had compassion on them. And, and that word... Uh, there in the Greek is so much stronger than our English compassion. Compassion is a little weak. Um, the word is based on the root splengtha, which is their word for spleen. And so if you can imagine, like, my spleen falling out of my guts onto the ground because I'm so emotionally tied up in it, well, that, that's, that's the word here. And maybe you've experienced this sometime where you feel like a pit in your stomach, right? Or something happens and immediately the, the whole emotions tense up, right? It's like that only for someone else. For someone else. So he sees all of them and his heart just explodes with desire to care for these people, right? He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He sees them as lost and needing to be found. He sees them as deceived and chained and bound and needing to be given the truth and unleashed and set free. And he began to teach them many things. Uh, we must imagine the parables came back out again. It grew late, verse 35. His disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread to give it to them to eat? You remember the Moses story we heard right a little while back? Remember what Moses said to God? 
where am I going to get the meat for them to eat? It's just as if Moses came to God and said they want meat, and God said, you give them something. Where am I going to get it? Same response here. The disciples to Jesus as Moses to God. Where are we going to get this food? How can this possibly happen? And Moses is talking to God, remember. He's God. He's part of the Red Sea. You think he can figure it out. Uh, well, the disciples are talking to Jesus. He's the same God who part of the Red Sea. He can figure it out. But see, they, they don't get it. They don't know it. This is, again, Mark's point. The demons, they're screaming, that's the Son of God. Uh, the disciples are like, who is he? He called the storm. That was weird. It's, they're hardened in their heads. It's going to tell us that here by the end of our story. Uh, Again, uh, they don't know where to get the food. Verse 38, he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Now, uh, scholars have tried to make something of, of the five and two here. Uh, numbers in the Bible often do serve multiple roles. They can not only be the historic thing that happened, like God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, but then that seven has an ongoing meaning because of what happened. And so the seventh day is set apart. It's holy. And so when God establishes holy things in the tabernacle, there's going to be a lot of sevens around. right? So the numbers, numbers in the Bible work this way. And five is a biblical number, but not one of the ones that you, you hear about in the big stuff, right? You hear about the 40s, right? and you hear about the 12s, and you hear about the 3s and the 7s, and even the 8s, uh, but five less so. And that's maybe for a good reason. It's because five is the number of woe. If you go through the Bible and you find any list of five, there's places where they list five things. You take all those lists, you put them in one big pile, you look at all the fives, there's no question, it's woe. Bad things are coming. It's woe. Five is the number of woe, and then the two, the two fish, I don't know. The total number, seven though, seven pieces of food, that's good. I'm not going to claim that there's really any meaning specifically to the five loaves and two fish though. I think far more important than any kind of numerological thing we could do there is to recognize Jesus just demonstrated that he can do with bread whatever he wants to do with bread. Things that you can't do with bread, I can't do with bread. Bread can't do this. And yet he did it. So then when later he says, take and eat, this is my body, the argument bread can't do that is a pretty bad argument. If you're talking to Jesus. You're talking to Jesus. He demonstrates his authority here again over bread from heaven. Don't miss it. Manna, unexplained, not through a prophet, but because he is God giving it to them. Yeah. He commanded them all to sit down in groups in the green grass. Only Mark mentions the grass is green. Why, Mark? Out of your way, just to mention the green grass. What, what grass do you see that's not green? I guess there's dead grass, but green grass. Verse 40. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Also sounds like something Moses did at the foot of Mount Sinai. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up, oh, you see it? Twelve. There it is. They took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces 
and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Well, the numbers start coming hard and fast there. And taking up 12 baskets is, is probably meaningful. But let's just start with the baskets, right? Like, like he's got five loaves of bread. You can set it on the, on the top right there. One, two, three, four, five, two fish. I hand out a piece to every one of you. I come around and I collect what's left over. And we got 12 giant baskets left over. There's more food after we eat than when we begin. This is upside down. Yes, the kingdom of God has come to turn the world upside down and to demonstrate that there is nothing too great or too high for God to achieve. Now then, these 12 baskets full, building on the woman of the seed of Israel with the 12-year blood uncleanness, as well as the dead young girl, 12 years old. Now here we have the crowds with these 12 baskets. There, there is clearly a picture of what is a number from the Old Testament of the tribes of Israel. And remember the 12 apostles. So 12 is a church number. It's a word of God number. It's about God's kingdom, right? And 12 baskets picked up, God's kingdom there in the text. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Mm, there we're back with the five again, right? Um, but before we go there, let me, let me get ahead of ourselves just a touch. In a couple of chapters, Jesus is going to do this again. He's going to feed 4,000 men, plus women and children. 5,000, 4,000. Now, once upon a time, it's not once upon a time, it's still now. There are people out there who will read Mark and see that Jesus fed 5,000, Jesus fed 4,000, they'll say, this is proof the Bible has mistakes in it. Because see, Mark, he didn't even realize he put the same story in twice and didn't tell it the same way when he did it. What a dummy you Christians are for believing this rag. Well, you can, you can make that case. You can make the case, no, no, he really did it twice. If he did it twice, why did he do it twice, though? And this is where the numbers start to give you a little bit of a feel, because that 12 is the number of Israel, and the 5,000 is the number of woe, and then you have 10 times 10 times 10, 10 is the number of completion, 3 is the number of the Trinity, so God's completion of woe upon the 12 tribes of Israel, eat the bread, but you're going to complain and reject me anyway, aren't you now? And that's exactly what happens. Whereas the 4,000 men, guess what they're not? They're not Jews. They're all pagans. All of them. The whole earth is filled with pagans. 4,000, 4, the number of the earth. We'll pick up more when we get there. I'll try to pull this all back together when that chapter comes our way. But just kind of see here that, that this 5,000, I believe it fully happened. I believe that the way that New Testament authors use numbers, it could have been 4,998, and that's still 5,000. American complaint about that being inaccurate is just stupidity. They used whole numbers. That's okay. But there was like 5,000 guys there that day, and that means there was probably more like 10,000 people. Because the women and the children would have been at least one for every guy or so. So it really did happen, and yet God's in charge of this whole thing. And, and oh, look, woe unto the nation of Israel who rejected their Messiah. It's right there in the numbers. Now, it doesn't have to be there in the numbers, but it's there, and it matches everything else. Now, if that wasn't enough for kind of a weird response to John the Baptist's death, 
He then piles the disciples into a boat and sends them back out into the water. Remember, the water is the abyss. The water is the realm of chaos. It's where all the demons get sent. It's where Leviathan dwells. It's where the storms of Yam come. And Poseidon gives his wrath, right? Oh, guys, go back out there without me. And last time they were out there, they needed him pretty badly. Does he know what he's doing? Yes. Let's look at the text. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. He finally does get his time uh, to pray. Do you, do you know yet what I think he's praying? Have I said it enough times? Is he there kind of saying, oh... I hope my heart feels some good things today, God. I hope I got a bullet point list of things you can do for me. No, 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 no. He's going to like Psalm 27 and said, Yahweh is my rock and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the evildoers rise up against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, it's they who stumble and fall. He was praying the Psalms. You got to believe that. That's what those words are there for. They're his Psalms. And he goes to pray them. He does get his chance to talk to his father. And verse 47, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Who's in charge of the wind again? I mean, he'd already shown he handles that, right? He just did that. And about the fourth watch of the night, he waits till they're stuck in the middle of the night in a low storm. He came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to pass by. <laughs> he's just going to let them be. They're struggling. And he's like, whatever. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple of fun things here. I mean, walking on water. Okay. Let me suggest to you, this doesn't happen by Jesus like making the water ice as he goes. Like every step is ice and then it unices, right? He doesn't change the water so that it's possible to walk on it. He just walks on it. How? I don't know. Now let's make it weirder. You're probably thinking like, like a still pool. But they're in a storm right now. See a Galilee, you get five to ten foot waves. Maybe they're just three foot waves. How do you walk on three foot waves? You ever, you ever, I mean, I don't know. I've served. It's hard. That's probably easier than, than walking, even if you can, because those waves are moving fast. But he's out there, and he's doing it. I just, I love that. Is he having fun? I love that. Maybe he is. I don't know. Even so, he makes as to pass by them, right? Um, oh, there was one other piece. He meant to pass by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost and cried out. Remember, the mythology of this time, the superstition, they really do believe the demons live under the water. And so they see him, and what do they think? Oh, they think that he's one of them. He's a ghost. He's a specter. Don't think like Casper the friendly ghost. Think like a genie, right? Some, some spirit that haunts the forests. And that's what they think he is, yeah? Uh, but he immediately spoke to them and said, this is good, write this one down, put it on your fridge, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. He didn't even have to tell it to this time. He's got in and it ceased. So again, what's he, what's he doing? 
He sends them out alone into the chaos. He goes to walk by as if he doesn't even notice that they're in trouble. And yet the moment that they cry out, he is present. And everything is calm. Now, let's put this with John the Baptist's death. The devil struck a great blow. The hordes of hell and the dark powers of chaos have risen up and declared that they're going to do battle against the Son of God and his kingdom, and they will use blood and sword to do so if they need to. And Jesus says, yeah, you know what? I walk on the chaos. I walk on the chaos. It does what I say. Don't worry about that. But now, see the rest of it. Verse 51, he got in the boat, wind ceased. They were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It's the 12. And Mark's come out clearly. I told you it before. The demon shout is the son of God. No one else gets it. Here Mark's like, yeah, they don't get it because they actually don't want to get it. They'd rather believe in their myths. And until he dies before their eyes, this isn't going to change. It is his resurrection that imparts to them the outpouring of the spirit of the new age. And so, of course, they have to wait for that. But for our part, as Christians, Mark's writing this so that we get to this point where we're like, not me. Not us. I see it. I get it. I believe it. He's not going to hide. He's not going to stop. And he has already astounded me by making me alive again according to his glorious grace. Did I choose that? No, I was dead. I was dead. But he came along and awakened. He made me alive, right? And that is your story. That is who he is for you and for all the elect throughout all history. And yeah, you believe that in such a time as this because he chose you for this day. Be one who has understanding, who knows the bread from heaven isn't about a paltry meal that just gets you one more day of life now, but is a bread of eternity, a body that shall never die again, who is binding you to his divine human self for the sake of a kingdom coming again. You see a seed right now, and the flower, the flower is what's coming next. Not going to hide not going to stop. Going to totally astound you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.